Yeah, so it's good to, uh, good to be back again. I was here a few months ago when you guys were going through uh, your series on Thessalonians. I think there's like a pattern. Whenever there's a passage Matt really doesn't want to teach, he gives me a call. So I think last time they had me talking about the Antichrist and everything, and uh, today we get to talk about uh, male leadership in the church, you know, all, all the things that are uh, pretty easy and non-controversial in our culture right now. Um, so I, I've, I've had opportunities to talk about this kind of stuff before, and uh, you know, one of the things we're going to talk a little bit about today is like the Bible's understanding of gender and gender roles and things like that. We're going to see in the passage there's some of like Paul saying, okay, you need to have you know, this instruction for the men and this instruction for the women, uh, and that all that kind of involves these kind of generalizations about masculinity, femininity, and all that. So a little bit of background about me. Uh, if you started like taking a poll at Cornerstone, you did like a little word association game, uh, and the idea is like, I'll throw out like an adjective, and then you name a person at Cornerstone. If you were to throw out the adjective nerdy, I would be the winning answer, right? So I, you know, I'm an academic, so there, there's a, you know, that's just kind of how I am. And so it was interesting, a number of years ago, we had a men's conference at Cornerstone, uh, and they wanted someone to give a talk on biblical masculinity. And uh, I'm thinking, like, I'm pretty sure if we again play our free association game, when you think, like, masculinity, professor is probably not the first thing that pops into your head, right? But there's things you don't know about me, so we've got an image uh, to throw up, right? So, I mean, I grew up in the Ozarks, right? I grew up with uh, two grandfathers. One was an avid fisherman. One was uh, an avid uh, hunter. Uh, but these are completely fake, right? So uh, this is the definition of fake news, if you're curious about it. So, you know, what's interesting, right? You know, my grandpas, who are both into this, uh, I loved a lot. And, like, my, like, like, for example, my grandpa on my mom's side, the avid hunter, uh, is maybe the most godly man I've ever known. Uh, I don't know if there's anybody who has like exemplified what an all out for Jesus life looks like more than him. But I also realized as I grew up that trying to follow his example as a Christian was more about following his Christian character than whether I liked hunting or not, right? And if we get into a thing where you have to like hunting in order to be a Christian man, something's gone wrong because it's not actually in the Bible, and we're taking stuff from our culture and we're importing it or ex yeah, importing it into what the text actually says, right? And we can do the same thing uh, with women. I, I, you know, I've been around where people will say things like, uh, you know, women are really verbal, they talk all the time, men don't really say very much. If you spent time with Anastasia and me, uh, you would realize this generalization does not apply to us, right? I talk way more than she does. You know, generalizations, women like shopping. My wife actually seems to hate shopping, as near as I can tell, right? It just makes her anxious and nervous. She doesn't like it, right? So we have these kinds of things we often say that are generalizations. Um, and one of the things that's been true in our culture is people are increasingly likely to get upset and angry if you make a generalization on the basis of gender, right? That's, that's a, a common thing. And here's what I want to say. On the one hand, I think we should acknowledge that some of the changes that have taken place in our culture over the last several decades have actually been good, right? Even over the last century or so. Um, I think the rise of feminism has actually had some helpful things 
in that there were times where we were taking like 1950s American culture and kind of reading that into the Bible and imposing standards on people that aren't necessarily there. And so the, kind of the rise of feminism gave us an opportunity to go back and look at the Bible and try to figure out what it does and doesn't say. So we're teaching what the Bible says, but we're not going beyond it. So for example, I think we do a better job today than we may have done you know, a century ago as Christians about explaining that domestic abuse is a sin, right? And it, there should be no tolerance for that. Uh, I think we do a better job now than we used to of teaching Christian husbands to be servant leaders instead of treating their wives like servants. Uh, I think it's good that women are allowed to vote and hold office and you know, explore a lot more options for career and vocation, all those things than they should have done in the past, because the Bible doesn't forbid those things. We're going to see, right, the Bible does have some views about male leadership in the church and in the family, and those are countercultural, but if we go beyond that, we create all these extra barriers that create resentment. And I actually think if we had done a better job of emphasizing those things I just described 100 years ago, a lot of the anger that has fueled our current moment never would have had the fuel to get going. But the problem is when people are reacting against things, there is a natural tendency to overcorrect. Right? So what's happened in our culture is even though there were some things in the past that really were wrong and needed to be corrected, we've now, in culture, tended to shift so far to the other side that any sort of idea that men and women are not completely interchangeable is offensive to people. But when we look at our passage, that's what Paul is going to be saying. So here's, here's the, the general framework I want to give us as we uh, dive into 1 Timothy chapter 2 today. I think we have a choice. One choice is we could look at our past culture, say 1950s America, and say, well, they got it right, and so our goal is to conform ourselves to the way they did things then. But the problem is the 1950s were sinful too. They didn't have a perfect reading of the Bible either. No culture has ever gotten this exactly right. But the other extreme is to say, well, let's just take whatever our culture says now and just figure out how to reinterpret the Bible to say that. But the problem is, what our culture says now is different than what it said 10 years ago, and it's different than what it's going to say 10 years from now. That's like planting your flag in sand. And so instead, we're going to try to use God's word and figure out what are the timeless principles it gives us that apply to all places and all cultures, and then figure out how to apply those wisely into the particular cultural context we live in. All right, so that's the goal today. The context in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is Paul is instructing a young pastor named Timothy who's trying to get the church sorted out in Ephesus about how to lead a healthy church. And in chapter 2, I think the focus is on the church as it gathers for worship. So like in the, in the previous part, we're not going to be talking about, back in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, I urge that petitions, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and those who are in authority, so we may lead a tranquil life, quiet life, in all godliness and dignity. So that's an instruction, like when you gather together for prayer, don't forget to pray for those who are in authority, or in authority over you, right? That's a command for corporate worship. So now when we jump down to our text, starting in verse 8, we're going to see the same thing, but now he's going to specifically speak to the men. He says, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without our anger or argument. 
In Greek, by the way, uh, there's different words uh, that can be translated man. One is like the general word for human being. It means like the whole species, male and female. Uh, but the word that's used here is the word for male, right? So he's, he's specifically talking to the men in the church in Ephesus, and he's telling Timothy, make sure these men know that when they pray to lift up holy hands without anger or argument. Now, for us, the part that we may be struck by is this whole lifting up hands part. That was not the weird part for them. Like, when you gathered in worship, raising your hands in prayer was a very normal thing to do. That wouldn't have been the issue. The issue is what comes after. Do it without anger or argument. So there's something going on in these churches in Ephesus where when the church gathers together, there are men who, as they are lifting their hands to pray, are harboring anger and divisiveness and argumentativeness toward their brothers in Christ. And Paul is telling Timothy, you got to help them cut this out, right? When you gather together, the men need to be setting an example in unity, not angry with each other, not argumentative, but instead, when they come together to worship, they should be pace setters for promoting unity within the church. Okay, so that's the principle, right? When, when, when men come together, it's important that they set an example by not being angry and argumentative. So now we have to try to figure out if that was the application in their culture, what would the application in our culture would be? Actually, this one is really easy. Don't be angry and argumentative. Right? I mean, it, I'm pretty sure we are at least as angry and argumentative in our culture now as they were in Ephesus then. And I think all across our country, there are lots of places where when the church comes together, there are men who, as they are supposed to be worshiping God, what they're really thinking about is all the people that they want to argue with and be angry with and all that, and that just promotes division within the church. And Paul is encouraging Timothy, seek unity in the church by encouraging men not to be angry or argumentative. But then he's going to turn, he's going to have something to say to the women. He says in verse 9, also the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing with decency and good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, or expensive apparel, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess to worship God. Now, one of the things to remember here, right, is Paul, as he is saying this, knows he is using a generalization. I don't think he thinks every single man who was in the congregation was argumentative and angry. But many of them were, and enough were, that it was helpful to target them and say, hey, you need to hear this. Similarly, I don't think it means every woman in the church was dressing immodestly, but enough of them were that it needed to be addressed. Now, as I grew up in the Ozarks, right, when I would hear passages like this talked about, the, the link was normally to like dressing in a, in a sexually immodest way. But as I've thought about this passage, I don't actually think that's the main thing that Paul was interested in discussing. I think he was talking about modest clothing, the way we would refer to someone as having a modest house, right? Uh, not overly fancy, not overly ornate, maybe not very expensive, right? A modest house. Because if you look at all the examples he does as he's contrasting, he says, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, or expensive apparel. 
In other words, one of the things people do in their culture and in our culture is use their clothing to flaunt and display their wealth, right? I mean, think about it. Like, as you go through life, when you meet someone, you often form a quick judgment about what social class they belong to based on the kind of clothes that they wear, right? It was true in their culture. It was true in our culture. And in the New Testament, there is a very strong teaching, not just here in this passage, but elsewhere. Paul says this, in, like in Corinthians, where he's really frustrated about how they're conducting the Lord's Supper. I see this in the book of James, when he's talking about like when a poor man comes in and a rich man comes in and you treat them differently. A key teaching in the New Testament is that our new identity in Christ is so much more important than the social class divisions that used to define us that if when we come together, we are reinforcing those class divisions to separate people rather than using the gospel to unite people as equal brothers and sisters in Christ, something has gotten messed up in our churches, right? And so what's going on there in Ephesus is women are dressing and fashion has basically become a competitive sport, right? They're like trying to outdo each other and showing off their wealth, and it's creating this dynamic where the people who don't have money just are falling farther and farther behind and feeling more and more isolated. And he's saying, quit doing that. Quit doing that. By the way, this doesn't mean it's wrong to always get, it's wrong in every instance to get dressed up, right? If people are getting married and you're out of a wedding, right, getting dressed up is sometimes simply a way of showing respect for the occasion, right? There's, there's times and places for things, but the emphasis in this passage is on the gathered church and so if when we gather as a church, you're trying to outdo each other uh, by how you dress, that's contrary to the spirit of the gospel. But then he's got something else, and here we get to the really controversial part of this passage, right? So as the church is gathering for worship, he says, verse 11, a woman is to learn quietly with full submission I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. Okay, so this is controversial across the spectrum. So on the one hand, obviously in our day and age, to say women aren't allowed to talk is extremely contrary to a lot of what we as Americans think about human equality and rights and everything else. But on the other hand, some people are going to say, no, wait a second. It says remain silent. Like even churches like Stonebridge and Cornerstone that uphold what's called complementarianism. This is the idea that men and women are equal in God's sight, created equal, but they don't have interchangeable roles in the church and the family. Are we actually following this? Right? Because right, just before I got up to preach, you know, Stacy was up here and she was doing announcements. She wasn't being quiet. She was talking in church. There's lots of instances where we let women talk in church. So there's a different critique that says churches like Cornerstone and Stonebridge actually aren't doing what the Bible says and we're being too permissive, right? So like on both sides, you've got these kinds of um, critiques. Here's, I think, the right way to understand it, right? The timeless principle here from this passage we'll see in a little bit and other places in Scripture is that as part of God's original design in creation, he intended there to be male leadership in the family and in the church, right? Where husbands are called to be heads of the uh, family in their uh, homes, 
and elders who are men are supposed to be those who are uh, the leaders of the church. And when we gather on a Sunday morning, what I'm doing right now is the authoritative teaching of the word. And I'm doing that by the permission of your elder team. And so the, the, the normal biblical pattern would be those who do that are either elders or people who are on a path toward eldership, right? And, and that the teaching of God's word in this kind of context is kind of uniquely authoritative, and so men are supposed to do that. Now, how does the silence part fit into this? Well, here's where I need to talk again about how the universal principle is going to apply itself a little bit differently depending on the culture that you live in. So let me, let me give an example. So when I, uh, you know, I, I, I teach at the university, and uh, a number of years ago, there was a friend of mine who was a, a visiting scholar from South Korea. Uh, so he was kind of on a temporary job working as a lecturer for Ames. He didn't have like a long-term contract. He had his PhD for a few years, and he was trying to get a permanent job somewhere. And he got a job interview back in South Korea, so he flies to South Korea, he does the job interview, he flies back, and after he gets back, we got together, and I asked him, well, how did your job interview go? And he's like, oh, I don't think it went very well. I'm like, well, what, what happened? What went wrong? He's like, well, I think I was too American. He's like, what? He's like, well, I mean, I grew up in Korea, I'm from Korea, uh, but I've been living in the United States for about 10 years now, and I've kind of really gotten used to American culture, and American academic culture is different than Korean academic culture. In American academic culture, if you're a young uh, scholar trying to get a job, the way you present yourself to your colleagues is very uh, confident and slightly aggressive, right? You know, you stand up and you do a research presentation where you say, everyone before me has failed to discover what I have now discovered. And if you can't show what you've discovered that no one before you has come up with, it's really hard to get a job. And so like within American academia, that counts as normal, right? When you're interacting with your colleagues about their work, you're supposed to ask really tough, incisive questions that show you can help them become better scholars because you can help critique their work. In Korean culture, there is a much stronger norm that junior scholars are deferential to senior scholars, right? Age is a bigger deal there in terms of the amount of deference you're supposed to show. And so he's realizing, at either partway through the interview or on the plane ride back, he's kind of like replaying how it went, and he's like, uh-oh. I think I treated this like an American job interview, not like a Korean job interview, and I think I probably offended and disrespected the senior scholars that are like deciding who to hire. Sure enough, he was right. He didn't get the job. Right? Now, here's the, here's the important point. Nothing he was doing there would have been interpreted or received as disrespectful at an American job interview because our culture is different. So the, the timeless principle here would be something like those who are young should show proper respect to their elders. But what counts as showing proper respect for your elders varies from culture to culture, right? Things that are viewed as disrespectful in one culture aren't necessarily viewed as disrespectful in, a, in another culture. At some level, we all intuitively know this because when we send missionaries out to other countries, they do a lot of work trying to understand the culture of the place they're going, knowing it's different than the culture where they were, and trying to figure out how to engage in the culture in a way that's respectful, right? So 
just so you know, it's not just other places that have a culture, we've got one too. Now, in our culture, there's a lot more freedom for women to be able to speak up without that being perceived as disrespectful to the authority of elders or husbands. Uh, so no one here thought Matt's authority was being usurped in any way by Stacy doing announcements today, right? Or women helping lead us in worship or things like that, right? At, at, at Cornerstone, uh, we have opportunities outside of Sunday mornings where women teach sometimes, right? So there, there's a variety of ways and different churches as they work through the details of how this uh, applies, are going to have like nuances in the exact details of how it gets applied. But here's the big picture point. The big picture point is that in their day, for a woman to stand up and speak publicly in that sort of gathering would have shamed her husband and probably uh, been viewed as disrespectful to the leadership there. And so within that culture, the only way to observe the principle of showing proper respect for husbands and elders was to remain silent. In our culture, it's different, so we've got more, uh, more leeway there. Now, having said that, one of the things I want to say as we like apply that to our culture is that that means there really are ways for women to speak up that don't undermine the principles of the Bible. Right? So a, a couple uh, examples. Um, when Anastasia and I are driving around in the car, typically I drive, um, but we have an understanding that if she thinks I'm about to run into something, she is supposed to speak up. Right? Some husbands may be like, don't critique my driving, but I've thought this through, and I would rather her unnecessarily warn me five times if the fifth time keeps us from being in an accident, right? And I don't feel like her saying, did you see the biker, <laughs> right, or whatever it is, right? She can say that, and it doesn't mean there's any lack of respect for me as a husband or my role as a husband, right? That's actually a healthy thing. Within the context of the church, I remember an instance at Cornerstone a number of years ago where the elders, and I was one of them, um, had implemented a rule that was very strict for, like, bringing babies into church and all this kind of stuff. And it was proving very difficult, the implementation of this rule for the staff who were having to carry it out. And uh, after a while, uh, two women who were on staff at Cornerstone asked if they could meet with the elders. And we said, sure. Uh, so they came and met with us. And very respectfully, they said, so here's our policy. We've done research at a lot of other churches that are like ours in various places we are more restrictive than any other church we know on this, and it's actually really hard uh, making this work. Would you reconsider the policy? And we thought about it, and we're like, yes, you're right. <laughs> we got this one wrong. Like, being elders doesn't make you infallible. And so there's all kinds of ways women can speak up and help us understand things we may not be seeing and come to a better decision, and nothing about that undermined male authority within the church, right? So the principle, right, is this principle of male leadership of elders and husbands, right, and, and this passage particularly focusing on the church. Uh, now, at this point, some people are going to say, but well, now, wait a second. If it's the cultural differences that are a lot of what's going on here, Maybe more or less all of this can be explained by cultural differences. 
Maybe the reason women aren't supposed to be elders or aren't supposed to teach and preach uh, when God's people gather together like this uh, it's because, you know, in their day, it would have been viewed as scandalous. In their day, women didn't have access to education. But now, in our day, women have lots of access to education. In our culture, it's not countercultural for women to speak and teach and lead. So maybe there's no timeless principle here. Maybe all this is, can be explained culturally. Well, there are Christians who think that, um, and there are Christians I respect who think that. But I want to explain why both at Cornerstone and Stonebridge, uh, we believe uh, the best explanation of this passage is different and that this principle of male leadership is actually part of God's timeless plan that he intends for all places and all times. And one of the reasons is from the passage we're looking at now. So having just said that women are not supposed to teach and have authority over men, he now in verse 13 is going to explain why. Well, what's the reason? 13 says, For Adam was formed First, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. It's really important here to notice that the reason Paul gives is not, he could have said something like, because women don't have enough education to teach the Bible well. Well, if that had been his reason, and later on women have enough education, then the reason would cease to apply. Or he could have said, um, women should not teach because in your culture this will create scandal and we don't need to deal with the scandal right now. And if that were the reason he had given now, if there was less scandal, the reason wouldn't apply anymore. But the reason he gives goes all the way back to God's original creation of human beings as male and female before sin entered the world. So if we want to know what God's ideal is that he wants us to aim for, like if we've got a target and you want to know what the bullseye is, going back and looking at Genesis 1 and 2 before sin entered the world is one of the places where we find the bullseye. And so he points us back to Genesis 2 before sin entered the world, and he points out Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now if God's desire in creating human beings male and female had been to communicate equality, and interchangeability, the easy way to do that would be just create Adam and Eve simultaneously. But instead, what God does is he creates Adam first. He speaks the commands to Adam, commands about caring for the earth, about not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam is entrusted with the job of transmitting God's word to Eve so that she will know what God's word is, right? So we see a little preview of what male leadership in the home and in the church is going to look like from that first creation story. Now, the next part, verse 14, where it says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. I don't think that's saying that women are naturally more gullible than men, but I think what it's describing is how in the case of Adam and Eve, when Eve is deceived and transgresses, what we're watching is a breakdown of what God's original intention was supposed to be. Right? God's original intention would be for Adam to be a good spiritual leader. But one of the things that's really interesting if you read Genesis 3 closely is it says after Eve disobeys God by taking the fruit from the knowledge of the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she eats it, it says she gave it to her husband who was with her. Right? So like Adam, while Eve is talking to the serpent, Adam is standing there the whole time just doing nothing, being passive right? The whole thing, right? Eve 
is misquoting what God had originally told to Adam. Adam is standing there, right? The whole thing is not working the way it was supposed to work, and I think that's supposed to point us back to trying to emulate God's original design for how it should work. And then we get uh, the most confusing passage of the whole uh, text, verse 15. It says, But she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. Now, there are a lot of different interpretations out there of what that passage means. And I am not sure which one is the right one. In fact, I've, I've, I've preached this same sermon before and given a different explanation than the one I'm about to give now. So like, ask me again in five years, I may have a different one. This is, it's, it's complicated. Um, but let me, let me tell you my, my, my current best guess of what's going on here. I don't think this means, and I'm actually confident on this, I'm confident it does not mean the only way for women to be saved is to have children. Right, Because we know from elsewhere in Scripture that God actually commends the life of singleness as something that's praiseworthy. Right? So it can't be that. I think the key, and if, you, if you're using the Christian Standard Bible that I'm using, I think the ESV does the same thing, translations that are a little bit more literal, you'll notice it says, but she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness. She is singular, and I think she is referring to Eve, because he's just been talking about Adam and Eve. So I think the idea is Eve will be saved through childbearing because, if you go back to Genesis 3, after Eve's sin, Eve is told that one of her descendants is going to crush the serpent, right? So Eve gives birth, and through the line of descendants coming from Eve, we eventually get to Jesus, who's the one who's going to finally crush the serpent. Right? So that part is actually a little bit easier. So then what do we make of this they part? If they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. I think they might either refer to the church as a whole or women within the church in the, in the generations after Eve. And the idea is Eve and people like Eve are having to wait for the fullness of God's salvation until they can enjoy it with all of us, right? As we, uh, their descendants, try to honor Christ uh, in faith, love, and holiness until Jesus comes back. My, my reason for thinking of that, thinking it's that, has to do with uh, Hebrews 11. So in Hebrews 11, we've got this famous chapter that's all the heroes of the faith, right? So we learn about Eve's son, uh, whose name was Abel. We learn about Noah Abraham, Sarah, Rahab. So there's all these different men and women who are heroes of the faith. And Hebrews 11 is talking about how by faith they followed God even though they did not receive the fullness of God's salvation and promise in this life. And it goes through all these different examples. And here's how Hebrews 11 ends. It says, All these were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us so that they would not be made perfect without us. Right? So, so there's this puzzle and mystery, which is none of us get to experience the fullness of God's salvation until we all experience it together when Jesus comes back. So people like Adam and Eve and Noah and Rahab and you know, all of them 
are all having to wait for the fullness of that salvation uh, to come, right? And, and so there's a call right, for those of us in the later generations to live in faith, love, and holiness and with good sense um, to, I think, something like speed the day, right, when that, uh, when that happens. But I don't want to end on verse 15 since I'm not really sure what verse 15 means, right? I want to, I want to kind of zoom back out and I want to ask, what's the big point that Paul is wanting Timothy to teach to the church in Ephesus. Remember, the whole context of this chapter, I think, is about the gathered worship of the church. And what Paul wants is the church to worship in a way that glorifies God and causes God's name to be glorified. That's the goal. Now, what's problematic, especially in our culture, is it can seem like the Bible is saying some contradictory things, right? In our culture, if I say men and women are fully equal in God's sight and men are supposed to have leadership by serving as elders in the church, even if I qualify that by describing other ways women can use their gifts to teach and lead and so forth, even with those qualifications, that restriction is just going to seem arbitrary. How can they really be equal if there's something like eldership that is restricted to men. And when we think about that, we can then compare that to other mysteries in the Bible. So I'm going to quote uh, something else Paul says in the book of Corinthians. In Corinthians chap- 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. So somehow there's this parallel going on between male headship, Christ's headship over the church, and God the Father's headship over Jesus the Son. Right? So I want to talk about that last part a little bit. Another contradictory thing we say, and we say it because it's what the Bible teaches, is that God is a trinity And as Trinity, the three parts of the Trinity, Father, Son, and equal, are perfectly unified. They are perfectly equal, but they do not have interchangeable functions completely. Only God the Son died on the cross for your sins. The Holy Spirit didn't do that. God the Father didn't do that. So their their role in salvation is not identical, even though they are fully united, fully one God, and fully equal. Part of us being humble creatures is realizing that an infinite God is beyond our ability to fully understand, right? And so if if some of the things we say about gender roles seem hard to reconcile, like how is equality and differentiation of roles possible, realize this isn't the only time the Bible has taught us about equality and differentiation of roles. But what if instead we understand it this way? The church, when we gather to worship, are supposed to turn our eyes toward a God who is a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And as God is both equal and unified, even with these differences, the church, if we reflect God, will reflect to our culture some of those same things. So notice in this passage, Paul's goal is that when the church gathers, 
Men and women are equal, but they are men and women who are equal and they are unified. Remember, that was the first part of the passage. Instruction so that when we gather together, our corporate worship displays the unity of God by our unity. And that the differentiation of roles that we have between men and women is not a cause for dissension, but instead something that unifies us as we reflect the unity and beauty of God himself. So I think the best application of this passage is to worship, right? To come as men and women created in God's image and say, God, let our corporate worship together reflect your creation design to your glory. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that our worship before you would not be angry, that it would not be argumentative, that we would not be reinforcing divisions of wealth or any other kinds of divisions uh, that exist outside, but instead that our common identity of brothers and sisters in Christ would help us to love and worship alongside each other with humble hearts, treasuring our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray that as we hear from God's word, Rather than viewing principles of male leadership in the church and in the home as something that is a cause of division, I pray that a a church here in Boone that is able to embrace that and joyfully join together in worship because of it, fixing its eyes on a God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, that that would be a testimony to this whole community about the goodness of God and the beauty of God and people would turn their eyes toward you, Jesus, Father, and Spirit. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.